everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So, today I have the pleasure of welcoming back Dr. Eli Meyer to the show. Eli is a coral biologist and aquarium hobbyist, and he owns Aquabiomics. Aquabiomics can analyze the microbiome of an aquarium using DNA sequencing, so they can diagnose issues and identify strategies for promoting a healthy microbiome. Eli, man, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Great so to be here. Uh, before we start chatting with Eli, I want to uh, thanks the, uh, thank the sponsors of the uh, show, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the live stream, and I also appreciate you folks tuning in. Please spread the word and hit that like button. You might even want to smash that like button so more people can find this uh, live stream. And as always, always encourage the comments and questions in the chat. We'll, uh, I'll do my best to, to, to take those and field those questions. We're going to try to have an orderly discussion here with, uh, with Eli. So I don't know, Eli, it's been about 10 months since we've had you on the, you know, the live stream. Do you want to just give folks a real brief, uh, you know, quick overview of the company and what you guys do, the types of services that you provide just as a, a little refresher? Sure. Yeah. So our company is all about DNA testing. We use, uh, DNA sequencing to identify different kinds of organisms in your tank. We started out with microbiome testing. So this focuses on the, the bacteria and the archaea, microbes in your tank. And over the last couple of years, we've expanded out into a, a new group of targets, um, same technology, but now we're targeting different organisms. Um, this is our tank DNA test. And this, this targets um, everything else. Uh, really everything that's not a bacteria or archaea is targeted by this test. And we use this to identify parasites in your tank, um, things, things that cause the major fish diseases in the hobby. Yeah, so th those are our major services, both based on DNA sequencing. So, yeah, we, um, I, I know uh, we, we talked about the DNA sequencing the last time you were, uh, you were on. Are you guys um, kicking around even you know, some other new services for uh, for the future, or are you just going to try to focus on what you guys are providing right now at this point in time? Yeah, so um, really thinking about the development of the company in kind of three phases. And the first phase was just getting it launched with the, the microbiome service itself. In the second phase, we've expanded out to this um, tank DNA service that I described, and we've also started adding um, some supplements. Um, so we're now selling live reef sand and live reef rubble. These are um, natural supplements that hobbyists can use to um, to boost the microbiome in their tank. And listeners may be wondering, you know, so what? I can buy I can buy that stuff anywhere, and, and that's true. There's lots of sources, at least for live sand. Um, the distinction with our products is that we use the DNA sequencing to test them and confirm that they are uh, free of parasites and pathogens before you put them in your tank. Um, so it's really it's the only live sand you can buy that comes with an ingredients list. You know you know exactly what's what's going in it. Um, in the future, uh, we are expanding out into um, you know our our main our main focus for the next steps of our service of of improving on our service is all about the turnaround time. Um, this has always been the kind of um, the major stress point for hobbyists, they've got a mm. sick fish or dying corals, they want that answer quickly, but 
you know, researchers operate DNA sequencing on a scale of months to maybe oh, wow. a year. That's, that's way too slow for <laughs> hobbyists. Um, so we've been operating with a one-month turnaround time this whole time. Um, we've now purchased a machine that will, once we, once we transition the service onto this new machine, this will allow us to do the sequencing in-house and we'll uh, make our turnaround time about oh, wow. two weeks. Yeah, so that's that's the major focus right now in times of improving our service is, um, you know, the end product won't really look that much different for the clients, but um, once we have everything up and running, it should it should come about twice as fast. In the very long term, phase three, we are planning a new technology. Well, actually, it's an old technology, but we're planning to use it for this purpose. Um, we're planning a, a qPCR-based service, so this will be for a specific pathogen or parasite, you know, if you just want to know, do I still have egg in my tank or is it gone? Uh, this technology, qPCR, is much faster. So in principle, we'll be able to give you the answer in days rather than weeks at that point. Well, that's that's a future vision. We don't even have the instrument in the lab, but um, you know, it's the same technology that they use for, for COVID testing. So listeners may be familiar with it already. Um, pretty quick. Pretty quick method. That's that's where we're looking in the future. Right now, we're focusing on making the sequencing-based testing go a little bit faster. So the current turnaround time is about a month. Do you have to? I mean, does it get put into the queue, and and uh, essentially, does it does it depend in terms of when you guys receive the results back from a hobbyist? So, for instance, like if uh, somebody sends you the results in and you get it back in the beginning of the month, the first like you know seven days of the month or something like that, does it kind of have to wait? in the queue, so to speak, for a little while before you, um, you know, have to run. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, sounds like you have some experience with our service. I yes. do. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a cycle, you know, it's, it's about a one month cycle. So if you, if your sample arrives early in the cycle, it will wait longer. So I often tell hobbyists, if you have, if you have the flexibility in your schedule, send your sample in at the end of the cycle, right before the deadline, um, which is typically end of the month. For, for a couple of years now, our deadlines have always been end of the month. So if you get your samples in towards the end of the month, you'll get your results. Your personal turnaround time will be shorter because they got there at the end of the batch. Yeah, when we get the samples in, you know, I have to accumulate enough samples in the lab in order to yeah. fill a batch. I process them. I work really hard in the lab to um, to do the to do my steps quickly. So, sort of three to four days of full days in the lab to process all the samples, uh, and then I send them off to the sequencing facility. Um, like just about every researcher out there, we're using a professional sequencing facility at a university. Um, the instrument that your samples get sequenced on costs about a half million dollars. So that's Certainly more than my budget, and it's it's more than the budget of most researchers. Yeah. Um, so we outsource it to these sequencing facilities, um, and I've got a good relationship with them, so they do turn it around quickly. But you know, quickly for them is a week and a half to two weeks. Then when I get the results, I work like mad to turn those those reports out in about 24 hours. So by far the longest part of the cycle is the sample sitting at the sequencing facility. And that's why bringing the sequencer in-house is going to make such yeah, a big difference. No. To turn uh, sound, sounds like it. So 
What, um, so those companies that you're sending the data out to, are, are they constantly tweaking their methodology to try to improve the accuracy of the results? Is that something that's always going on in that business? No, it's funny. They, they, they're cookbook operators, you know, and, and I don't mean that as any criticism. It's actually intentional, but everything is standardized. Every sequencing run is exactly the same. And so actually the company, the company's name is Illumina. They're the biggest um, DNA sequencing company in the, in the, in the world, probably. Uh, they send out, you know, they, they sell the instrument and they also sell the reagents, the chemicals yep. to use it. So think about it like a printer that also, a printer company also sells the ink for their, their printer. Right? That way they know the ink cartridge fits just perfectly in there. Um, and it's the same way with Illumina. You know, every kit is identical and the, the operators at the sequencing facility, they're, they're following it exactly by the book. So it's the same, it's the same every time on their end. They frankly don't even know what it is that's in the sample they're sequencing. They're, they're putting it in, loading the other chemicals, and pressing the right buttons to to make gotcha. the data come out. So, for, besides like the the turnaround time, what what um, Eli have been your biggest challenges since you started this company in terms of um, you know the aquabiomics, you know the services that you could guys provide? What what what's been like the biggest challenge for for you guys? What do you think? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of logistic challenges on the side of running the business that probably aren't, aren't as interesting to the listeners. Um, but from the perspective of the technology, I'll say that one of the challenges, and this, this, is, uh, this is not a challenge that's unique to aquabiomics or unique to studying aquariums. This is a challenge for using DNA sequencing to study microbes. Uh, the way that all of us do this is we sequence the same piece of the bacterial genome. Uh, the analogy I always give people is it's like if you went into a library and just read the first page mm -hmm. in every book and identified the book based on the content of the first page. Well, that works pretty well. And I mean, that's where the whole field of microbiome studies has come from, but it's not perfect. When you're just reading the first page, there can be cases where you can't identify that book because nobody else has ever read that first page. And so you don't have a, you don't have a list where you can say, well, this text corresponds to this, this book. Maybe my analogy is getting a little uh, tortured here. <laughs> um, let's, let's go back to DNA. So when you're, when you're sequencing just a piece of a single gene, that, that sequence may not be in the database. Maybe nobody mm. else has ever encountered that particular sequence before. And so there's a chunk of the data that comes back that I can't tell you what it is. Um, right now, we don't talk about that in the report, just like all scientific papers also don't talk about it. But that's, that's a challenge that some of the data we can't make sense of. Um, and that's a, it's a challenge that will be really addressed well by moving to this new sequencing platform that we've purchased, because this allows us to sequence the entire gene. Um, it's something like 10 times more oh, data, wow. right? The, the whole gene is about this long and we're sequencing this long, right? About a 10th of the gene. So it's going to allow us to identify, uh, a larger fraction of the sequences that we get back. It'll also bring some clarity in cases where we can identify it to a certain level, but we can't identify it any further. And actually your results have a, have a good case.
case in point here. Um, your uh, your pre-sample that we recently sequenced, uh, that community was dominated by a family called Vibrio. Yeah, that Nacea. sort of scared this me. This is the family that yeah. Vibrio. Yeah, it, it does, right? Because we know Vibrio includes some pathogens. Well, I looked in detail into this. Your sample had so much of this group that I wondered, you know, which types. And it turns out that almost every sequence in your in your sample, almost every Vibrio Naceae sequence in your sample was identical. They were all the same type. However, it's a type that we can't identify below the genus level. And that's because that same sequence is shared by multiple different Vibrio species. So again, that's a that's a challenge inherent to DNA um, and sequencing a longer piece is going to help. So uh, the, the reports will just get more and more informative as we start sequencing a longer piece. So um, yeah, so that's a that's a challenge that all of us face. Yep, in I hear you. Okay. So um, when I had Jake Adams on a few weeks ago, you know, he, he had talked about he had done some uh, testing of you guys and, and he um, he said he was skeptical of some of the results. I can't remember if it was um, he had Astrina snails or if it was uh, Aptasia, but I guess, you know, the reports that he got back from you said he did not have this pest that he um, that he saw in his tank. Well, um, you know, I, I just want to give you an opportunity to address that comment. And, sure. and will that um, this this new technology you're talking about in terms of, you know, 10 times more data, will that potentially resolve an issue where you're um, not reporting something that uh, hobbyists might be seeing in their tank? Yeah, so I mean, let's let's broadly talk about how how the what kind of errors can occur with this technology, um, and that's certainly one type of error. You could have something in the tank and you don't detect it. Um, it turns out that the test. Let me step back and let me let me say, it's not really even about the test. It's more about the sample. Um, so. So for tank DNA, we're sampling DNA that's floating around in the water yep. in your tank. That's the, uh, it's, a, it's a subject that in the research world, they refer to it as eDNA, uh, meaning environmental DNA. Um, and this is quite different from the microbiome stuff where we're actually capturing cells and taking the DNA out of those bacterial cells, right? So in order for us to detect something in your tank, it's DNA has to be abundant enough dissolved in the water of your tank for us to detect it. Now we detect a lot of stuff dissolved in the water of your tank. We detect, you know, fish, corals, sponges, snails, all the stuff you can see, we, we can detect them. But if your sample contains a whole bunch of DNA from something else, maybe it's got a lot of diatoms, maybe the sponges recently spawned and it's got a lot of sponge DNA, that happens. That reduces the number of sequences available to detect something else in the sample, right? It's like most of the most of the sequences are taken up detecting that abundant thing. So rare species, rare uh, members of the DNA community in your sample, um, we may miss them as a result. Um, and it turns out that some of the animal pests like Aptasia, uh, Asterina, <clears throat> those don't contribute a whole lot of DNA to the, the water. Now, if, if you get me 
a little piece of one of those things, no problem. We can detect yeah. it. I mean, we've done this. Um, actually, short side note here, Asterina. These are uh, little starfish that many of us obsessively take out of our tanks because we're convinced they Coral, eat corals. Yeah. And I believe this. Um, well, some of us have noticed there are black ones and white ones. I've never seen black ones. Okay, so um, several of us uh, hobbyists in the area here, we've compared notes on this, and, and we all, we're all convinced that the black ones eat corals much worse. The black ones are the, really the bad ones to, to watch out for. Um, well, when I go in DNA sequence, the black ones and the white ones, I find that they are, in fact, different DNA sequences, supporting that these are not just different color morphs. They really are different beasts, whether at a species or subspecies level. That was a tangent. My point is just to say, no problem. If you get the DNA from Asterina in my tube, we will detect it and correctly classify it as Asterina. If a sample has a very, very low amount of Asterina DNA in it, we're not going to detect it. Um, if you're looking for something that's visible, uh, the best, most sensitive way to detect it is always going to be visually look, look for Asterina in your tank. Um, we can detect them. We detect them in lots of tanks. We detect Aptasia in tanks. In fact, we use our Aptasia testing, we use tank DNA testing to test the live reef rubble that we sell. And we frequently detect Aptasia in that stuff even when we can't see it. And as a result, we can't sell that batch. Hmm. So I believe I believe that you can have a tank with Aptasia in it where we don't detect it in the in the sample. That just tells me there wasn't much Aptasia DNA in the water. But from experience, I can say that the test is sensitive enough, sensitive enough it often does detect Aptasia even when you don't um, can't visually can't see, see it. it in the tank. Now what about, um, yeah. I know you guys also um, can detect like acroeating flatworms. Do, do you need uh, like a big infestation of that or can it just be like one infected coral perhaps where you might be able to detect the uh, Acroidin flatworms. So that's another one where I'm going to say whether it's because of the prevalence in the hobby or because it doesn't contribute much to the water column, we rarely detect it. We've only detected those in a couple of tanks. Um, I did have a colleague in Europe send me a specimen of the flatworm itself and sequenced it, and no problem, it shows up as acroidin flatworm. It's in the database. It sequences just fine. Um, yeah. So I think that you know. For Aptasia and um, Asterana, I have enough data to say that the test is not, again, it's not the test, the samples are not um, terribly sensitive for Asterana and Aptasia. If, if your primary concern, you the hobbyist, if your primary concern is, do I have Aptasia, you should look. That is, that is the most sensitive way to test for these things because you can see them. Um, I think DNA sequencing is most appropriate for, for issues where you can't see it. So um, what about like parasitic copepods? You know, there's like the red bugs. Um, you know, I, I think there's um, been evidence that there's other types of bugs out there, black bugs, white bugs, whatever. Um, some people even yeah. don't like to use the term bugs because they're uh, copepods. Sure. But um, what? Um, how, how accurate can your testing be to detect those sorts of things? Because those are very hard to see yeah. with a visible eye, but you can, can have an, a total sure. infestation and you'll probably notice it with reduced polyp extension. And yeah, um, I can tell you copepods show up very commonly on our tests. Um, 
Uh, I can't think of a case where we've detected any of the parasitic copepods, but we certainly detect copepods frequently. Maybe half the tanks that, that we test come back with, with copepod DNA. So if any listeners out there have a known case of an infestation, um, you know, please send me a sample. I'm, I'm happy, let me, let me phrase this really carefully. If it's a parasite of interest that we haven't detected frequently, and you have a sample of it that you know it's there, hmm. please send it to me and I'll sequence that thing for free. Cool. Um, because it's, it's, really, it's really useful to get that first positive result. Um, yeah, so I think most of, the, most of the stuff that the test is really good at is are the micro eukaryotes. We get excellent sensitivity for dinoflagellates, and of course there are some parasitic dinoflagellates out there. We get excellent sensitivity for ciliates, and this is another group. We know there's some some bad guys in the ciliates. Um, so I really think that is the best um, the best group of organisms to look for here. If you want to know what kind of ciliate, you want to know what kind of diatom or dinoflagellate, anything microscopic like that, this test does a really good job at, at picking them up. So a uh, funny comment by... Uh Great bearded reef. Uh, come get some of my Aptasia. Most have names these days like Bob, Johnny, etc. Can't wait to get another CBB. That's a copper band butterfly, I believe. <laughs> I, I must I must clarify, we have plenty of samples of Aptasia. Yeah. <laughs> um, no need for more Aptasia. So Planet3D is um, is asking a couple of questions. And, and it, I had a question basically um, um, based on what you were just saying in terms of determining, you know, all these different... Um, uh, you know, organisms in the tank, uh, pathogens, what have you, pests. But um, going back to my example in terms of the uh, the bugs, you know, some some of the bugs are um, parasitic, but some are not, right? I mean, there's some copods yeah. that uh, will not harm uh, Acropora or what have you. I mean, is there a way for you guys to identify <clears throat> the good guys versus the bad guys in terms of those types of parasites? Yeah, so it looks like this, um, have to get into the weeds for a a minute here, okay? Let's get uh, into the when you sequence a When you sequence a piece of DNA, uh, rather than sequencing the whole genome, we refer to that as a genetic marker. It's one little piece that you're targeting to, in order to uh, classify the organism. Okay, and genetic markers, uh, a particular genetic marker may be really good for one group, that is, it can tell them all apart, and it may be really bad for another group. That is, they all look exactly the same for this genetic marker. Um, the marker that we use is very bad for fish. And so uh, people sometimes come back to me and say, well, this is strange. You, you told me I have cod in my aquarium and that's the only fish. <laughs> no, it's, it's not that. I, and I inserted a little note about that. Um, the marker just isn't useful for fish. It detects that there's fish in your tank, but it does not correctly classify them because fish don't have enough variation in this piece of the gene. Copepods do. So this is, this is a useful marker for differentiating copepods. Um, it does resolve them well. Um, so if we get the DNA from a copepod in the, into the sample, then I have high confidence we're gonna be able to identify it, uh, at least to the genus level, and really we usually identify them down to uh, the species level. Does that is so? Planet Three D is asking, you know, um, in terms of coral pathogens, how do you determine which coral pathogens may be, uh, or which pathogens may be uh, tolerated by different corals? So, can 
obviously you guys can do that, right? I mean, in terms of identifying the different um, bacteria that could be impacting um, corals, but I guess, you know, how, how do you determine what, what one is uh, so, bad versus good? So I guess I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about the question, but let me, let me answer what I think, I think we're getting at. Let me know if it didn't, if it didn't cover it. So talking about bacterial pathogens. Yeah. Um, there is a list of bacterial pathogens that we screen for, you know, so step back for a moment and say that our first step with the bacterial data is simply to take every single sequence from your sample and ask, who is it? Which, which species is this? We identify each species, uh, each type as far as we can, whether that's the genus or the species level. Once we've done that, once we have identified everything in the sample, then I just have some code that goes through and it has a list of known pathogens. And this is based on published reports where people have identified this pathogen causes this yep. disease. Um, and so we, we identify, we, we, we detect pathogens in people's samples on that basis. Um, we find things like, um, well, there's, there's several, um, A. Roeri is one of the most recent ones that we've been seeing a lot of. It's uh, a very common, um, almost symbiont in nature. It occurs in about a third of corals in nature and in low nutrient conditions, uh, it doesn't cause any kind of problems for the corals. So it just hangs out there as kind of a, a neutral member of the community, not causing any problems. But when the coral is transported into high nutrient conditions, all of a sudden this bacterium, aqua rickettsia roeri, uh, it, it turns into a pathogen. It starts stealing nutrients from the host and um, leads to reduced growth and, and tissue wasting. Okay, anyway, my point there is just to say that's an example of um, a bacteria that was identified by researchers, you know, presented in a peer-reviewed publication, and we've just screened for the name of that bacteria and found that it's in the sample. Uh, we have other sequences, other um, suspected coral pathogens. Some of them are based on peer-reviewed papers where mm -hmm. I found somebody had done a study and you know we took those names or sequences and added them to our list. Others are based on our in-house work, such as this um, Archobacter species that you and I were talking about earlier. That's it hasn't been formally identified in a in a peer-reviewed publication, um, but boy, we've got a lot of good evidence for it. Um, so I mean, broadly, we're we're using the DNA to ask who is this each for each bacterial sequence, and then we're just comparing that list of names with a list of known uh, bacterial pathogens. Um, See if I hit any of what he was looking at in that rambling. Answer. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, he's also asking, what have you identified with regards to brown jelly and torches and hammers? Anything specific? So I'm I'm convinced that is a bacterial disease, and I know there's a there's a school of thought out there um, that it's caused by ciliates. Um, I am completely convinced that this is a bacterial disease caused by Archobacter. Uh, a particular type of Archobacter. It's not classified to the species level. Um, we call it type 1103. Um, this same sequence, we've found it associated with brown jelly disease on multiple continents now. And if you treat it with ciprofloxacin at a low dose, 
0.125 milligrams per liter. Um, you knock out that particular type of Archibacter and the other bacteria stick around. So it's, it's really sensitive to Cipro. So having seen it in both directions now, you know, it's associated with the emergence of the disease. And if you, if you knock it out with a specific back, um, antibiotic, the disease goes away along with that one type of bacteria. I'm quite convinced that that's the cause. What hasn't been done now is one of the important steps to really publish this thing would be to isolate the pure culture of the bug and deliberately infect a coral with it to demonstrate that that does cause brown jelly disease and then re-isolate it uh, from that coral. So if there's any anybody with a lab out there wants wants a, a an easy paper to write up, that, that would be a great, you know, some somebody really could sit down and, and finish the study on this thing um, to formally classify it as a as a pathogen. But in my own hands, I'm quite convinced bacterial disease caused by Archibacter 11.3. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, using an antibacteria, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm assuming you're also talking about it as a dip, right? You're, you're dipping corals in this um, antibacterial agent to, um, yeah. correct? Important question. That's, that's exactly how I started out for sure. Um, I personally have not had success with dips of Cipro to treat, um, to treat, that is to, you know, address an existing infection of brown jelly disease. I do use a preventative uh, Cipro dip when I buy a bunch of euphilia yep. from a wholesaler because the wholesaler euphilia always come in with this bug on them and I just do a preventative dip. I don't have good evidence that that preventative dip is doing anything because I don't waste half of the euphilia uh, as controls. <laughs> um, they're too expensive. Uh, but yeah, in my own hands, I have not had success using a dip for a treatment. Um, a, a colleague of mine has, um, Lex Inverts, guy we were talking about earlier, he's had some good success using, um, using a Cipro dip. The way that I use Cipro to treat brown jelly disease is actually as an in-tank mm. treatment. That's the, the low dose that I just described. And the, the low dose is really critical. I'd be very, very cautious putting antibiotics in your tank. Yeah. Um, I only did it because I had a tank that was almost only euphilia and they were all dying. So what do I have to lose? You know, so, so I tried it after some careful research and got lucky. It, it turns so out uh, an in-tank treatment is something perhaps you might not recommend to somebody with a mixed uh, reef tank. Absolute last resort. If, if, yeah, I mean, if you've got, if you've got some sick euphilia, um, your best bet would be to remove them to a, Hospital uh, tank. Let's say a hospital yeah. tank rather than a quarantine tank, because the idea would be, you know, to, to treat them in that tank um, for a while. Um, yeah, that that would be my preferred method: is remove the euphilia into a separate tank and treat them with the with the cipro. If you can't do that, or you don't care because it's only a euphilia tank, then uh, a low dose of cipro in tank does seem to work. All right, I'm going to address one more question from Planet 3D, yeah. and then uh, that person has uh, gotten a lot of uh, airtime. So, we're, other folks, please ask your questions. But uh, hey, this person's asking a lot of good questions, so I'm going to uh, I'm going to throw yeah, them out there. Um, you know, essentially the uh, the comment is that uh, you guys have some excellent information, but um, do you also provide recommendations in terms of how to act on that data? You know, so um, if you if you come back with a certain 
path coral pathogen or if you come back and, and you, you're showing like the tank's got cyano and the person knows it got cyano or are you coming up with uh, recommendations solutions to help the hobbyist uh, solve these issues right that that is a that's an important part of the service and it's also a major challenge <clears throat> and i want to say that i uh i've taken a stance on this that may be hurting me financially, but I think is the right way to go. And that is, I'm not going to give you advice unless we have evidence for it. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we find in the tank, and let me, let me take an example here of, uh, SCTLD. This is a group of, this is a, a coral disease, um, stony coral tissue loss disease. It's a Caribbean coral disease. It's a major problem right now in the Caribbean. We find four or five of the pathogens associated with this disease in aquariums. So here I'm telling you, you found a pathogen in, in your tank and you may want me to tell you what to do about that. But this is a, an ongoing area of research. You know, not only do I not know how to treat this disease in your tank, science doesn't know how to treat this disease in your tank. I don't want to be too critical about the aquarium hobby here, but maybe we can all agree that there are some players in the aquarium industry that are not so careful and feel free to prescribe you a bottle of something you could buy, even if there isn't really good evidence that that thing is going to work. Um, if we don't have evidence that we have a treatment for it, I don't want to give you advice claiming to have that evidence. So as the company develops, you know, as, as, our, um, as our knowledge, as a community grows, we're gonna have more and more advice for you. Um, when we first started, we had very little advice we could offer, but as, as, we've, as we've gathered more and more data, we've learned more about these relationships and now we can give you more advice. Let me give you a positive example here. I just told you I can't tell you how to cure a coral disease. Well, let me tell you something we can tell you how to address. When we first started looking at people's microbiomes, we saw they were all different. We started kind of classifying the patterns and seeing what microbiome was associated with what kind of an aquarium setup. One of the strongest uh, signals, one of the strongest relationships we found is UV sterilizers. So people put UV sterilizers on their tanks with the idea of killing parasites and killing pathogens. Um, I don't want to take a strong stand about whether they're effective for that purpose because I haven't done those experiments. But what I can tell you for sure is they kill the most abundant group of bacteria that's found on the natural coral reef, very, very specifically. So if you go out to the Great Barrier Reef, the most abundant group of bacteria is a group called Pelagibacteraceae. <clears throat> The beginning of that pelagi refers to the pelagic zone so these are these are free swimming bacteria plankton they're truly floating around in the water rather than clinging to surfaces and again on a natural reef it's the most abundant group on your reports it shows up as a big pink bar in your community composition and we find that uv sterilizers specifically get rid of this group so when we first started out with the company and, and I'd get back a, uh, a report, a profile that had no Pelagibacteraceae. I didn't know what to tell you about it. Over time, we've learned it's very clear that the UV sterilizer is causing the absence of that group. 
So now I know what to tell you to do. If you want to increase that group, two things, turn off your UV sterilizer, and because it's a waterborne bacteria, get some water from either another clean tank that doesn't have a UV sterilizer or some water from live sand or from the ocean itself. So yeah, my, my point in that story is to say, to give you an example of this, this idea that as we gain more knowledge, we're able to tell you more about how to adjust uh, the microbiome in your tank. You know, it's an interesting point about the UV sterilizer because, um, you know, I use them in my systems and, and mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not really more for the, um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about, you know, fish disease. I think that um, mm. uh, there's, there's a lot of parasites, right, in terms of fish disease that uh, UV sterilizer won't knock out. I guess there's some that, that it will. Um, mm. I, I use it for, uh, you know, like dinoflagellates. There's, uh, you know, certain strains of dinos that uh, UV will, uh, you know, knock out, which I think is uh, something that comes in very handy these days with all the different sure. dino uh, outbreaks out there. Um, yep. You know, can it kill the uh, good guy versus the uh, the bad guy bacteria? You know, obviously you're saying that, uh, yeah, that can be the case. But it would be very interesting to kind of see some sort of research into that in terms of what that impact is on, on yeah. reef tanks. I mean, yeah. you know, I have uh, I have very healthy corals in my in my systems. And I know other folks that you use UV that um, have uh, very healthy corals as well. But then there's also folks that don't use UV and have very healthy uh, systems, uh, too. So it's an interesting yeah. question. And I would I would love to see. Um, some more in-depth data on that. Yeah, I agree. And and I definitely acknowledge that we don't have that experimental evidence that um, that the presence or absence of Pelagibacteraceae hurts or helps corals. Um, I, I guess I bring it up purely as an example of um, how we can give you advice about adjusting the microbial community in your tank. Um, but, you know, it's up to the end user whether they want to do that or not. Um, you know, sometimes we may have a client, their major concern is just about the pathogens. Yeah. They're not trying to find the microbiome. Right. They, they just want to know about pathogens. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, one more question from, uh, from one of the viewers, uh, great bear to reef. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Everybody, if, uh, if you want to hit that like button, please do. So we've got almost a hundred people watching, but only uh, about 31 likes there. So, uh, let's get those likes up people. <laughs> Scott Oliphant has a question. Are you worried about antibiotic resistance in the hobby over time? There seems to be a wide uptake of various antibiotic, even used simultaneously. We've walked this road with uh, tetracycline. Yeah, I think that's, I think this is an excellent point, and I hope more people are thinking about this. Um, I I always try to clarify that that I don't recommend prophylactic antibiotic use in a tank, um, you know, I would, uh, I think that's been, that's been one of the major problems in, in animal breeding and agriculture has been the routine use of antibiotics just to enhance growth rates because it, you know, reduces some, some infections along the way, but it also leads to widespread antibiotic resistance, which is a major problem. And I would hate to see this problem crop up in the aquarium hobby especially if it was my advice that, that led to it. So please, yeah, let's not do, you know, preventative antibiotic treatments. That would be a surefire recipe for developing antibiotic resistance in the hobby. Um, I see antibiotics in, um, 
in the hobby, really like I do with my own children, don't use it unless you have to. You know, don't don't just use antibiotics anytime there's a sniffle. Use it when there's a, a serious disease and there's no other way that, that you can treat this thing. Um, and brown jelly disease is the only one that I have done that with. And I, I did it because I had evidence that it was bacterial and I was I was specifically testing that that theory saying, okay, if it's bacterial, I should be able to knock it out. Yeah, I mean, I've had a couple of uh, folks on the show that, that do use ChemiClean as a preventative uh, measure on the, on their systems yeah. and then report that, um, you know, everything is, is uh, you know, no impact and it's just they've got clean, healthy systems. But, you know, I don't mean to knock ChemiClean here, but it is an antibiotic and uh, it will, yeah. my understanding, it will take out the, uh, the good bacteria as, uh, as well as the, uh, the bad bacteria that you're trying to eliminate that's causing certain issues, right? Yeah, I and I haven't done I haven't done a side by side study with ChemiClean myself, but um, I've read those posts where people have. Um, I guess somebody sent it out to a sort of third party lab and, and got confirmation that it really was an antibiotic. Is that is that right? Yes, that's uh, my understanding. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, if if that information is correct and it really is an antibiotic, then um, in principle, it is it is affecting the community probably much more broadly than, you know, the targets you're going for. Of course, the dose matters too, you know. Um, so without knowing the concentration, I guess I can't speculate about how much, um, how much we would expect it to impact the aquarium. I will say we have lots of clients that run ChemiClean. You know, it, in the questionnaire, as you've seen, when you submit a sample, you kind of check off, here's the things that yep. I do in my tank. and. People mention they use ChemiClean and their tanks don't come back, you know, completely sterile or completely bizarre. It it seems to me that whatever impact it is having on the microbial community must be um, not completely disastrous because we don't see we don't see a huge impact. Uh, certainly need to put that one on the list um, of, of controlled experiments to do because it is as an antibiotic, we have good reason to expect it's going to impact. The I mean, it, it's so easy to use, right? A red slime remover to uh, put in your tank and then bam, within a couple of days, it's gone. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the easy way yeah. out. And, and, you know, I've used it. Um, it's always like caused another issue. So there's, there's always been some sort of um, side effect that I've noticed whenever I've used, um, you know, the, uh, the ChemiClean to address cyano. Yeah. So I, um, I really do try to, my, my first, my first uh, means of rectifying the, uh, the problem is always to use good old fashioned elbow grease and to try to like, um, you know, address yeah. the root cause of the issue. I think stuff like uh, yeah. ChemiClean is, uh, is more of a Band-Aid than, um, yeah. than, you know, anything else. I'm glad to hear you say that about elbow grease. Yeah, my, my recommendations for cyano generally involve a physical removal you know get the get the population out of there of course you're not gonna you're not gonna remove every cell but you know vacuum it most of it out right some good cleaning b i like to uh make sure the nutrients are detectable so in in my own tanks i run into cyano problems when the nutrients become undetectable so really thinking nitrate nitrates here um when i have undetectable nitrates I run into cyanobacteria, and and the, and the reason oh. being, my understanding is because the cyano is 
consuming or bacteria are consuming a lot more nitrates than they are phosphates, right? So when they finish consuming the nitrates, that, that happens first, then they'll go on to the phosphates. So if you've got zero nitrates and you've got some phosphates, then um, potentially back or uh, nitrate dosing could help, right? If you're raising up the, uh, the nitrates. So I have, I have used nitrate dosing in those cases. Um, these days I've stopped. I've, I've had good success with nitrate dosing to, to combat cyano um, as part of sort of a multi-step process. But these days I, I don't do it anymore. I just feed more. My feeling is, you know, the, the ammonia, well, the, the nutrients in the food will be converted, as we all know, down the pathway and become nitrate. Um, and there were a couple instances where I had some weird algal blooms from dosing nitrate itself that I haven't seen from dose, just upping the food level. But I think, I think either way is a valid way of, you know, increasing the nitrate levels in your system. Uh, my understanding, part of the, part of the reason that it, <clears throat> that cyano do so well, um, when there's low nitrates is that they can actually fix nitrogen that other, other, um, you know, elemental nitrogen that other, uh, groups don't have access to. And so they don't, they don't need the nitrate. Um, they can they can sort of make their own. Um, I think that's one of the factors that, that causes it. Anyway, so yeah, you know, echoing what you said, elbow grease, clean them out, get some nutrients in there. And then the third thing, I, I have seen benefits in my own tanks. Um, if I have a cyano bloom and I add some live sand, that seems to help. So there seems to be a microbial competition going on. Makes sense, cyano are also bacteria. Um, and it seems that by boosting the diversity along with the deep cleaning, that that really helps. Cyanide. Yeah, that's interesting because um, we're going to get into in a little bit my um, my uh, results with you guys. I, I did a little experiment. Yeah. Uh, well, not an experiment. I, I, I did something, a major reboot on, on one of my systems. And I did a pre-test, a, a, a microbiome pre-test, and then I did a, um, a post-test. But I also did another test in terms of... Um, the uh, Rubbermaid tub I was using to cook some rock for that uh, that transition. So we'll we'll get into the uh, the details of that. But the the interesting thing cool. is is that um, I have had um, cyano pop up after I rebooted this uh, this tank. And you know one of yeah. my theories is, and I don't want to make this more about me versus uh, you know what what uh, we've been talking about in terms of the conversation. But you know one, one of my theories is that um, I had a lot of corals in that tank. A lot of that coral had encrusted the rock. I removed that rock. A lot of that encrusted coral got, um, you know, removed from the system. So less corals in the tank uh, meant less corals to consume nitrates and phosphates, which means that there is a, um, a, a nutrient, um, you know, excess nutrients in the tank since one of the uh, things that was removing those nutrients is now gone, right? Yeah. So I think that, uh, yeah. to me, might might be one reason why I'm I'm seeing cyano in the uh, newly rebooted tank is the uh, subtraction of some corals. I agree. Yeah, I've seen I've seen things happen like that with corals where I've added a lot of um, soft corals to a system and seen the nutrient levels just completely different, right? Because you've added animals, and we've seen it with fish. You know, you have a fish or two die, and you take them out of the system, and now there's different nutrient levels. It's it's something that I think doesn't often get noted well enough is, well, you know, I still have corals and I still have fish, but maybe just one less fish or one more fish may actually have been the tipping point. 
I also added about, um, I also doubled my fish population, so that probably had something to do with it, too. Yeah. You know, it's just basic, uh, you, know, uh, you know, stuff that makes a lot of uh, common sense, I think. That, that's what we need. A friend of mine has, had one of the most beautiful coral tanks I've ever seen, had a, had a velvet outbreak in his tank. Obviously, doesn't hurt the doesn't hurt the corals at all, but lost a bunch of fish, and so he ran his tank fallow for a while and struggled with nutrients as a result because he didn't have all the fish around pooping, you know, and, and lost a lot of corals just as a result of taking the fish out. So, yeah, some of these sometimes the the solution or the cause of the problem is a pretty low tech. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that they've um, got elevated nitrates and phosphates and almost never see any cyano. So um, yeah. that seems to be a common uh, uh, observation here in the comments. So, um, all right, Andrew um, Boma, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who I, I saw in the chat earlier, and, and he's a hobbyist and a biologist. He's a friend of yours out in mm -hmm. uh, Oregon. Yep. I'm going to make sure I pronounce Oregon correctly. I, uh, I, I think some would disagree with emphasizing the gun part, but let's keep the politics. So how do you pronounce here, huh? how do you pronounce the state? Oregon. Or, Oregon. Yeah, you said it right. I'm, I'm oh, just okay. Teasing. Yeah, I've taken a lot of flack over the years because one of my favorite corals is the Oregon blue tort. So that's uh, you know, I always mispronounce it. Um, all right. So Andy um, passed along some information to me that uh, seemed to be very interesting, and I, and I wanted to kind of um, throw it out there to the folks at viewing and 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 have you kind of give your take in terms of what Andy has uh, yeah. been seeing, but he was able to collect some evidence using your data that a strain of Cipro-sensitive bacteria, Archobacter, which you already mentioned uh, earlier in the uh, live stream, was likely responsible for the brown jelly disease in uh, Ghani's. He also received right. some data from you last month that suggests the uh, Archobacter may also be responsible for at least, or at least correlated with RTN in um, Millipora. So, According to yeah. Andrew, the exciting implications of this are that since we have been able to neutral, neutralize, I guess, the Arcobacter within tank treatments and dips with Cipro, we can potentially use, also use Cipro as a tool to treat corals that are starting to RTN. So you want to you want to kind of get into that, um, Eli, in terms of yeah. what the implications are, what what uh, Andrew has found. Yeah. So his. His samples, I mean, it's it's great having a local reefer friend that's also a biologist because he's always running interesting, collecting interesting samples or running interesting experiments for me. So I had I had detected this association between Archobacter type 1103 and brown jelly disease in Euphilia. I'd previously written up something on Reef to Reef about it, and we've now um, we've now backed up that association in probably a dozen or more tanks, including a couple of tanks in Europe. So, I mean, this thing is a pretty specific association between this one DNA sequence, uh, type 1103 Archobacter, and, and a widespread coral disease. Andy's samples have been really useful for extending that observation. It appears that this is a more general coral pathogen than we had originally suspected. So he's got good evidence from Ganiapora that it was, um, you know, in his disease samples, it was hugely prevalent. In his control samples, it was not. And wiping, it, it was also successfully treated in Ghanis with uh, low dose of Cipro. Um, recently, he had some RTN and Acros, and the same kind of evidence uh, showed an association there. That is, it's one of the most abundant bacteria on the diseased corals. 
but it doesn't show up at all on the uh, control corals. Um, I don't know if he's done the treatment yet um, with the with the acros to say that it also you know can successfully treat the um, the infection in acros, but it's it's been successful in treating the other infected corals with the same pathogen. So if if it's causative, if it really is causing the RTN in acros, then it suggests that we could treat it uh, in the same way. Yeah, yeah, I think it's hugely hopeful and. Well, wouldn't it be nice if it turns out that many of our coral diseases are caused by one bug and we can, you know, focus in on, on that one bug? What as hobbyists can we do? You know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that these coral pathogens can be passed from one hobbyist to another by just simply, um, you know, if you're trading frags or if you're buying frags from, um, you know, from somebody, an online vendor or what have you, and they have that coral pathogen you know, in their system. I'm assuming that it can get transferred that way by just kind of hitchhiking. Is, um, are we yeah. looking at a future potentially also, uh, you know, um, a very common thing is for acros is, is to, uh, to dip them, you know, in, in whatever it is, bare potassium chloride, what have you, and other dips out there. Are we also looking at a potential another kind of dip for um, these uh, pathogens? Preventative dip, preventative you know, dip. Dipping a coral certainly is uh, certainly presents less problems for the rest of your tank than an in-tank treatment, right? You know, I, I would prefer if we're going to use antibiotics widely in the hobby. If that's our future, I would prefer it was used as dips rather than a, as widespread use of in-tank yeah. uh, treatments. But I have to say, I'm even hesitant to do a universal dipping regimen that I would apply to every coral with antibiotics. I'm, I personally don't do this now. I only do preventative dips for euphilia and only if I've got them from wholesalers. When I get when I get euphilia from other hobbyists, uh, I, I don't dip them in antibiotics. Um, there is some risk of causing antibiotic resistance and also antibiotic treatments are not, um, they're not zero stress. It, it imposes stress on the animal, just to put it through an antibiotic treatment, um, quite aside from the impacts on the, the microbiome of the coral. Um, the coral microbiome includes beneficial bacteria too. And so if you hit it with a high dose of antibiotics, um, there's a good chance you're wiping out good bugs along with bad bugs. So you're asking if that's our future, I'm not sure. It's not my practice now. Now you're talking about transmission of these these bacteria. Um, we know they can be transmitted for at least a couple of these coral diseases. They can be transmitted through the water, so they certainly could be transmitted on an infected coral frag. Um, so I think it is a I think it is a real concern. It is something we should be thinking about. But I am a bit hesitant to suggest that we should all jump to preventative antibiotic treatments. Um, let me suggest this as an alternative, and it's not, it's nothing new that I'm inventing. It's simply quarantining, coral quarantine rather than preventative uh, antibiotic treatment. If, if we all quarantined our corals as carefully as many of us quarantine our fish, this would, if nothing else, give you that, that observation period where you can wait and see, look, that, that thing didn't RTN in the first two weeks or the first month. That's a 
more, I can be more confident that it's pathogen free than if I didn't put it through that, you know, one month quarantine. What, what about uh, corals that are stressed out? Amanda Meckley from ACA Aquaculture is asking this question. Is it possible that corals that are stressed are more susceptible, you know, to these sorts of coral pathogens? You know, a coral wholesaler, the uh, the corals that they're receiving are making a much longer journey versus, um, you know, stuff that's purchased by hobbyists, you know, within the United States. And those are going to be yeah, very stressed out. Yeah, I, th I think we can answer that. Absolutely, yes. You know, there's there's good good publications that they've done with abiotic stressors such as temperature or light. Um, you know, if a coral is stressed because of its conditions, yes, it is more susceptible to bacterial infections. Um, and that's another reason why I, I don't dip my corals quite as harshly as a lot of people dip their corals, because last thing I want to do is stress that coral out after it's just been through a, a shipping yep. um, Lynn Reef Nerd is asking um, specifically for the uh, Cipro, uh, what would you recommend for the dip concentration for a Cipro, and for how long should the dip be? Any thoughts on that? Um, so this is this is one that I don't have experience with, simply because my my attempts at dip dipping Euphilia in Cipro were not successful. Uh, uh, let let me say that another way. I've done a preventative dip in Cipro, where I have no evidence it works because I haven't done the carefully controlled. Um, you know, control versus uh, treated, right? I've used it purely as kind of a Hail Mary, please don't die, my new coral. Um, uh, Andy, that you mentioned a moment ago, I know he's done some careful dip trials and has had good success with it. I know it's a higher concentration than the concentration that I use for the in-tank treatment. Um, and of course, a shorter duration. Maybe we can get those details up in the, up in the notes or something about this later. Um, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips. Yeah, Andy, if you want to put um, something in, but they exist, so we can pass them on to you. That was that was Lynn, yeah. is that right? Yeah. I, I I'll pass the pass those details on to you. Yeah, or Andy or or whoever um, want to put it in the comments yeah. in the uh, the video. That's that's good too. Um, Bert Minshew has a good question. Um, Eli, have you tried to see the exact bacteria strands on RTN STN for SPS? Is it is it uh, Vibrio? So I've done. I've done several um, several swab trials on on RTN, uh, and I have found Vibrio types elevated in them. Um, they were never Vibrio species that have been previously associated with diseases, so I I didn't have an obvious smoking bullet, and they were also not um, they were also not completely clear results in terms of the infected ones had a lot of it, but the uninfected ones also had some of it. So my, my short answer here is I don't, have, I don't have a conclusive data set saying what is generally the bacteria associated with RTN. It's been a challenging thing to study because as the listeners all realize, RTN moves fast. So I mean, sometimes you observe RTN by finding out that it happened last night and your coral is gone. And at that point, I really, you know, can't take useful, I can't do useful experiments uh, with it at that point. Um, in, uh, in Andy's recent samples that we talked about where he had RTN and Acropora millipora and, uh, and we took the samples, they were not elevated in Vibrio. They had some Vibrio in them, but it wasn't a known pathogenic type um, 
and it wasn't especially elevated. What was what was really striking in those samples was the Archibacter. Um, broadly, I think there are lots of Vibrio that are associated with RTN and probably causing it. There are certainly some published papers where they've, they've linked RTN in a specific coral with a specific Vibrio. Uh, I suspect it's not really one syndrome caused by one bacterium. It's probably multiple bacteria, all of which produce similar symptoms and cause this broad family that, that we call RTN. So uh, <clears throat> getting back to uh, Euphelia, Great Bearded Reef is uh, making a comment, a fellow club member, and Euphelia God uses Cipro, Iodine, ChemiClean, and Amino Combo and swears by it for um, black mm. uh, jelly disease. If he sees a uh, tissue recession, he uses mostly iodine and aminos. That's quite a cocktail there, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so, you know, if you wanna knock out bacteria, that is one way to go, right? Is hit them with everything, <laughs> knock out all the bacteria, and you'll probably get the one that you're, that you're after. Um, I'd be much more comfortable using some cocktail like that as a dip than, than as an in-tank treatment. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's, uh, that is a dip. God, I hope it's a dip. <laughs> I, know there's, I know there's a, yeah, I've lost his name right now, but there's there's another hobbyist that's written me with very, very detailed recipes similar to that. It's a cocktail of multiple antibiotics that he uses and claims good success uh, for uh, treating our uh, What, what about, uh, I'm kind of like jumping back and forth here between uh, LPS and, and, S, and, and SPS in terms of coral uh, pathogens, but the SPS, RTN, STN, um, Mike Paletta is a big proponent of using uh, witch hazel. Thoughts? So, you know, we haven't done, we haven't done an experiment on witch hazel. And I, I was just looking at, we have a couple of bottles of it in the lab. I was just looking at it today and thinking, we've got to do that experiment. In the absence of an experiment, I'm always going to be tempted to say, I don't know. Um, the, the evidence I've seen on, on forums about witch hazel, it seems like it's usually focused on ciliates. Am I right? Um, I don't know. Let me say, I've at least seen some people saying, well, you know, I, I did this witch hazel treatment and it, and it removed this, this ciliate that I think is associated with coral disease. Um, there are a few ciliates that have been published that have shown associations with coral disease in published studies. Um, they are not the ciliates that people talk about in the forum posts about this subject. And we very rarely see these disease-associated ciliates in our in our samples. Um, this makes me kind of scratch my head about what the witch hazel could be doing. But without an experiment, I can't. You know, I, I can't. I can't uh, disagree with someone else's observations. Um, but I don't. I don't know the mechanism. You know, I don't know what organism are we targeting. Is it effective at at removing that organism? So really would like to see a controlled experiment done on this. It may be a very useful thing to add to your tank. I just don't have data. Fair enough, fair enough. Rob Upstenier, thank you very much for the super chat. The comment is great chat. Fingers crossed, no coral monkey pox. Laugh out loud. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, Eli, let's uh, let's let's do a little transition. So you, you, uh, you made a reference um, earlier about um, some t uh, test results from my uh, one of my tanks, and yeah. um, I thought it would, it would be really cool to kind of go through some sample reports that 
I've um, gotten back from you guys on on my 187 gallon you know tank that I rebooted and and I'll you know give some folks out there an idea what your reports look like and and uh, what the data looks like and you know so just to give people some background in terms of what what I wanted to test I uh, you know a lot of a lot of you that uh, follow my channel know that I did a major reboot on on one of my uh, tank systems my 187 gallon tank which was a mature reef tank for like five or six years full of corals it's just everything was uh was doing really well and and the corals were just growing like crazy and it was kind of choking one another off so it was getting to the point where i was i was getting um you know some some uh, stn at the base of some of the corals because of the lack of flow the lack of light and uh you know it was tough to to kind of tear down a beautiful reef tank a very beautiful mature reef tank it was uh, probably the hardest thing i ever had to do in reef keeping to be honest with you uh so yeah so what, what my plan was and there was like a ton of coral that had encrusted on the live rock so probably like 95 percent of the live rock the 125 pounds of haitian live rock i had in that uh, tank that were facing the light about 95 percent of that was encrusted with coral <clears throat> so it wasn't like i could just kind of clip these colonies off the rocks and and start planting frags because it was all full of encrusted coral right so my my um the, the plan of attack was to swap out the rock, that Haitian live rock in the tank, with live rock that um, I picked up. It was a dry rock, carob seed life rock that I um, was cooking in a 100-gallon um, Rubbermaid tub with the established tank water. And I did 10% weekly water changes with the, um, with, with the water in that tank. And, you know, I had a heater. I had... Um, a couple of recirculating pumps. I had no, there was some like residual light hitting that uh, tub, but no direct light over it. So, um, you know, I had, I had it cooking for six months. I was dosing bacteria, um, the Microbacter MB7, or the um, Brightwell's uh, Microbacter 7, that, uh, you know, on a daily basis. So, you know, the goal was to try to retain the bacteria population in that system. It was a 187-gallon tank. I also have two frag tanks plumbed into that system with a lot of acros in those tanks, um, a 75-gallon and a 50-gallon, um, you know, frag tanks. I also put in a cryptic sup. So I essentially took out the Haitian live rock, uh, chiseled off all the encrusted coral, so that's, that's what I was talking about before in terms of losing a lot of the, the encrusted coral. And I put that rock into the cryptic sump. And what I did was I did a pretest before I did all of that, before I swapped out the live rock, I did a pretest, a microbiome pretest, I'll call it. And then I also tested mm -hmm. after six months the Rubbermaid um, tub to see what the microbiome looked like with that, with that tub. And I did a third test mm -hmm. about two weeks after that swap. Uh, you know, I call it a post test. We haven't gotten the results back yet. I know for um, for that for that uh, test. So I thought it would be an interesting experiment to kind of see how the uh, biodiversity changed. You know, in the system. I mean, does that sound like a uh, a valid experiment to you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of before and after comparisons within within the same tank are always a always a good thing. Of course, you know, formally to step back and just criticize point out, you know, limitations to experimental experimental design. Um, we don't have a control side by side where you didn't do all those right. manipulations to the tank. So we should have some level of skepticism about any change that we see 
can we attribute it to the manipulation you did, or is it simply a change over time, right? That that would have occurred anyway. With that said, um, I, that's just my uh, experimental design OCD kicking in. I think a before and after design like this is a is a very useful. Uh, you know, and I also yeah. thought it would be useful to kind of see, you know, does cooking rock like that is that effective? Does that you know kind of uh, do what you intended to do, which is to you know, help yep. bacteria colonize that rock. Yeah. So um, the first slide that I'm showing here is this um, pretest. So this is before I did the whole swap. And this is the uh, diversity slide. And it actually gives a diversity um, score. And it says that uh, my tank's diversity is among the lowest of the tanks we have tested. And um, on the scale of uh, zero to 500, it's, it's rated at a 45. Do you, you want to just kind of explain, Eli, what that means? Yeah. Yeah, so the diversity, um, we give you two numbers for diversity. One is one is the raw number. That is the, the number of types that we identified in your sample. And this is standardized for uh, sequencing coverage. In other words, if one person's sample gets twice as much DNA sequences as another, we standardize for that so you don't have to think about how that could influence it. The other number there is the percentile, right? Just converting that number to a percentile so you can ask what fraction of tanks were lower than mine. Um, and yeah, yours, yours was quite low. Now, uh, as you and I were discussing earlier, we, we didn't get um, as many DNA sequences as we would like for that batch of samples. And, and this will um, lead to an underestimate of your diversity. Does So based on my experience, based on the numbers we're seeing here, I believe your tank truly has a low diversity, but this absolute number is an underestimate of it. When we get the additional data, we'll give you kind of re refined estimate. My prediction is it's still gonna be low. Is that, um, is that, do you think, partly due to the fact that I'm using a UV star? I mean, it, it, you know, it's a, five to six year old reef tank, but it does have a UV sterilizer on it. Does the UV have uh, come into play at all in that data? Well, you know, we tested, we tested your tank, uh, I guess it was August of 2021. I was, right, I yeah. was looking back at your yeah. old report. Um, and you had a pretty reasonable diversity. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the highest ever, but it was nothing like this. It was a pretty reasonable diversity level last time. I could pull up that number, I know it was, no, it was higher. And so my point here is there's been a change. Yeah, so previously, in 2021, we, we, uh, we had your diversity score at the 29th percentile. Hmm. And, and this recent sample that we took put your, your score at the first, at the first percentile, wow. right? 99% of tanks have a higher diversity score than, wow. than this one. Um, so that's quite a reduction, and that's before you did any experiment. Um, so I think... I think that's the first thing. That's the first thing I want to say about these. Uh, sorry, I'm struggling with uh, technology here <laughs> as I try to switch back to the full screen Skype. That's the first thing I want to say about your results is that it appears there's been a change in the community in your tank that has nothing to do with the experiment you're discussing. It it is simply a change hmm, over time. Interesting. Um, I mentioned that the the diversity score is is an underestimate because of coverage. But I believe when we give you more data, you're going to come back and have the same conclusion. Diversity is declining. So here's the, the um, oh. diversity 
of the Rubbermaid tub, right? So this is um, this is interesting to me because this is like I described. I'm basically, I just have the uh, carob seed life rock, which is dry rock, in there. I'm dosing bacteria on a daily basis, and I'm doing 10% weekly water changes, and that's it. There's no other equipment on there other than the uh, the heater and and the pumps. Yet the diversity score is uh, is much higher. Yeah. Yeah, this diversity score in your Rubbermaid tub is is pretty comparable to the score in your tank about a year ago. It's um, it's again not the highest of any tank we've ever sampled, but it's I, I guess a percentile of 34 or something. You know, it's it's sort of towards the low end of the normal range. It's a diversity score that I would describe as moderately low or low, but not extremely low, um, and it's much what we detect. In your tank. Can you can you so in terms of did you succeed in establishing a diverse community in the in the Rubbermaid tub? Absolutely. That's that's way more diverse than you would get if you had just put some dry rock in that tub. Do you think the uh, bacteria dosing is what uh, is driving that? Because I'm also I was also dosing bacteria the same bacteria to the uh, to the established system. But do you think the daily dosing I'm, of bacteria is possibly uh, helping that? I'm pretty confident in saying that the the diversity we're seeing in your Rubbermaid tub came from the oh. water. We lost you there for a second, the Eli. You, uh... And I say that because those bacterial you products... You, you cut so out, right? Uh, you, you, pause for a yeah, moment. You, you cut out right when, you were, uh, right when you were about to say the answer yeah. there. So I think what I heard you say, well, not positive, is that you believe the diversity is a direct result of the uh, MB7 bacteria dosing? Oh no! No, I think the opposite. I think no. I think it's the water. Um, so so I think what you were doing by moving water from your established tank into the Rubbermaid tank um, appears to have been very effective. At least some of those microbes in the Rubbermaid tank. Hmm. Okay. Going to pause here and ask. ask uh, video okay for you right yeah, now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and the reason I say that, a couple of reasons. One. Uh, I've I've tested that product in particular along with a few others, um, and there's only a handful of bacterial types in that product. Um, two, the bacterial types we're seeing in your tank uh, look like the types that we see in a normal tank, not in a not in a bacterial product. Gotcha. Your uh, your video is actually frozen, Eli. I could hear you fine, but your video is frozen. Oh. Hopefully it's a network. Now, now, your, now your audio is kind of cutting out. We'll, uh, we'll pause for a second here. Hopefully uh, get Eli back. Eli, can you hear me? Oop. We lost him. I'm going to try to uh, reconnect. Let's try to reconnect there. Hang on, folks. Well, internet uh, situation going on on Eli's end there. Darn internet. <laughs> Maybe he should move to a different part of the house. I'm raining again. Probably raining again in Oregon. Oregon. Yeah, Lynn, maybe. 
<laughs> All right, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get back with Eli in a second here. Go uh, go take a bathroom break, folks, if you want to here. Come on, come on. <laughs> What's going on? Ah, technology. All right, let's see. I think he's active now here. All right, let me um, let's give it a, a, a few minutes. I'm sure it's just the internet's blipping out on him on his uh, on his end. He uh, definitely has a uh, can be a uh, tricky internet uh, connection in his house. But uh, yeah, maybe maybe somebody else in the household there is uh, is using the internet, uploading some movies or something like that, downloading some movies. I don't know. Um, yeah, folks. So. <clears throat> I uh, like I like I had talked about. I had ordered a, a bunch of um, uh, microbiome tests from these guys, and yeah, I just thought it would be interesting to kind of compare the results in terms of before I did this major change to the tank versus um, you know after the uh, the major change of the tank was done. Because I think you know we 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 read a lot about there's a lot of anecdotal you know conversation going on out there in terms of people cooking live rock and rubbermaid tubs or whatever, and and uh, so I think to me, I wanted to be able to quantify it a little bit to see if that sort of practice would be beneficial to the dry rock to essentially make it live rock. And um, according to the results that we've seen so far, it looks like that is the uh, the case that my uh, theories are being validated. Draw them again. Well, I hate to end this thing uh, prematurely, but uh, let's see here if I can. Uh, maybe he's uh, emailing or texting me. Let's see what's going on here. Amanda, I'm not going to sing a song. Anybody else got anything out there? <laughs> any experiences? Anybody else had any experience using the the aquabiomics data that you want to talk about in the chat? Any other comments about uh, the data from Eli? Um, let's see. Any questions for me? Well, let me uh, let me at least show you some of the other uh, data that um, I got back from these guys. 
Yeah, that's not a good idea, Bert. Uh, so let me let me show you guys the uh, the composition data that uh, I got back from this. So this was the composition data of the established tank in terms of the uh, all the different bacteria that were found in the results in this pretest. And um, yeah, so Eli had mentioned that there was a lot of um, Vibrio in the sample, but I guess what he was saying earlier is that there was no um, evidence in terms of whether it was the good stuff or the bad stuff in terms of the Vibrio. There's different strains is my understanding. I don't know. Maybe the power went out on there, and that happened to me once with um, Dr. Tim. Anybody remembers that? Anyway, so that was the pretest, and then this is the um, the uh, the composition of the bacteria for the uh, for the Rubbermaid tub. So yeah, uh, Eli had had been uh, talking about this earlier, and it, and it seems to have it seems to show a much better diversity in terms of the bacteria population in the Rubbermaid tub. So um, it, it yeah it it definitely seems like the uh, the swapping, the 10% weekly water changes that I've been doing with the established tank water have helped. And uh, I did do this for six months, so that was an extended period of time. I know the folks that I was talking to about this whole process in terms of pulling out rock from an established reef tank and putting in dry rock. That Those folks had actually cooked the dry rock for much uh, less of a period than I did. I think in one instance it might have been two weeks, and, and they uh, had a successful swap in terms of that taking live rock out and putting dry rock in. So they only um, were soaking it for two weeks. Another person, I think, was doing it for a couple of months. I did it for six months. I wanted to be sure. All right. Keep trying, uh, Eli, here. I don't know. I think there might be a... Um, I'm going to see if there's an email I'm getting from him. All right. So, uh, folks, I don't know, maybe I'll have to get Eli back on at some point uh, down the road. We got, uh, we, we almost got through everything I wanted to talk about. And uh, perhaps what the best thing to do for me is once I get back the post results on this little experiment, I'll just maybe do a, um, a YouTube video on that to kind of go through all the different results. So, um, yeah. That's probably the best uh, plan of attack. One last shot for Eli. <laughs> Thanks, Bert. I don't mind awkward silence, just an FYI. Patch in. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, I think we're going to uh, sign off. It's almost uh, 8.30 anyway, Eastern Standard Time. I uh, apologize for the uh, technical difficulties. I'm sure there's a good reason why we lost uh, Eli. But like I said, I'll, uh, I'll do a follow-up video on this little experiment of mine and report back the, uh, the full results of this uh, microbiome pre, post, and rubber-made test. So, listen, I want to thank Eli for, uh, for being on the show. I also want to thank the sponsors for the show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. 
And I also want to thank all you folks that were out there tuning in and participating in the chat. And finally, a big thank you to Paul, the moderator. I also want to let you know that all episodes of Rap with Refum are now available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Rap with Refum live stream is going to be a good one. You're, going to want to, you're not going to want to miss this one. It will be on Thursday, August 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with both Dr. Sanjay Yoshi and Mike Paletta together on the same live stream. So I'm really, really excited about having these two legends of the hobby on together. Should be another great show. If you want to uh, check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, then visit reefbum.com and check out the YouTube section. Until then, be safe, be well, and we will see you next time.